0: Welcome to Rector's Cupboard, a podcast for people who are interested in questions of culture and faith. We ask these questions from outside the institutional structures of religion. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you enjoy and benefit from the conversation. There's an interesting documentary on Netflix, well, there's a number, but the one I'm thinking about, I think it's called The Last Blockbuster, and it talks about blockbuster video, and the very last one, which is in a small town in Oregon. It plays, it's interesting that it's on Netflix, because Netflix maybe was part of killing blockbuster. When I was a kid, you spent your Friday night or your Saturday night when I was a young adult, going to the video store and standing in front of a wall and selecting a video and you hope they had it in and all that kind of stuff, and you had late fees and everything else. And now there are no more Blockbusters. Uh, The Bible never said that the gates of hell would not prevail against Blockbuster, but apparently the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But at times it can seem like we're waiting for the last uh, Blockbuster to close. The church, in many people's minds, is in decline. You may have participated in church... Um, quite exhaustively in your past, and now maybe don't go to church at all. What is the church? Who is the church? Does the church have any role in society right now? Uh, What do pastors think about that? What do others think about that? Here at Rector's Cupboard, we were really pleased to be invited to enter into conversation with a friend of ours, David Goa, who is an author and museum curator, um, writer on all kinds of different topics of faith and culture, Uh, He's the founder of the Ronning Center for Religion and Public Life, and uh, he's a bit of an Orthodox theologian as well. And so he said, why don't we talk about the church, who the church is, what the church is, and what people have to say. So this series is what has so far come out as a result of that uh, invitation. We speak with a number of people who care about the church and are willing to ask some of those honest questions about where the church is at and what the future looks like for the church in the days ahead. We've got uh, six episodes, I think, seven episodes, and, uh, and we'll be releasing those uh, every couple of days. And so if this is the first time you're listening, if you're listening as they're released, that will be the cadence. We hope you enjoy the conversation. We are calling this series of conversations with David Goa and others about the nature and state of the church At this time in the world, we're calling this series, The Church in Between Times. This first episode, episode one, we speak with Tim Dickow, who is uh, on staff at the Center of Missional Leadership at St. Andrew's Hall in Vancouver. Uh, Tim was previously the senior pastor of Grandview Calvary Baptist Church in Vancouver, and that church became very well known for doing a number of fantastic projects in the larger community. In this conversation, Tim highlighted for us a consideration of the place of the church in the larger world through its presence in particular communities.
1: In my home, there was only two things you could talk about, theology or politics. So I grew up with this sense that um, the gospel and the Christian faith wasn't about itself, The church was not about itself, it was about the life of the world. Now, while I grew up with that, certainly the church, the community that we were part of, didn't necessarily agree with that, but I I got that with my mother's milk and my father's tutelage. So I have grown up with a kind of love of the church, and also a sense of its curious ambiguities. So I wanted to explore with a number of people their understanding of the ecclesia. What what really is she? What really is she? And what have we, what's going on in our understanding of it, and what does this moment in history bode for how the church has been understood by various communities? So that's why I wanted these conversations, and I'm grateful that that uh, Todd and Allison have invited several people for us to talk with.
0: Yeah, so this afternoon we're joined by Tim Dickow. Tim was for a number of years, how many years? 30. 30, that's a number (laughs) of years. Uh, The pastor at Grandview Calvary Baptist in Vancouver, involved in a number of projects there, as well as pastoring the church. And has more recently been working with City CityGate uh, Ministry in the City. What leads the slogan again? Not again,
2: prepared. helping the church work together for the good of the city. Thank you.
0: And uh, with St. Andrews Hall on the campus of UBC, Vancouver School of Theology, the Presbyterian uh, crew out there, um, helping in the uh, Center for Missional Leadership, uh, among other yeah. things. So, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be having these conversations with clergy, and we know you bring a lot of experience and insight to, Uh So, David, uh, ask away.
1: Jeremiah, sitting there in Egypt, told his relatives in Persia, Babylon, to pray for the city. He even told them to marry, as I recall. You know this better than I, but to marry the locals. You have, uh, Tim, you have also written about uh, the secular and the sacred and the forming of Christian communities in light of the world in which we live. First of all, why do you care about that? Well, my...
2: Vision of the church it really formed both during my study of theology and also being part of the church in a particular place. Um, I came, I was formed with, a, had the opportunity to study with Tom Wright for three times in my under my graduate degree, and really got a vision of Jesus on the ground in Palestine, touching all of life, at both the personal, corporate, and systemic level. And I brought that kind of vision grand view of a church rooted in a place seeking to see the life of god extended to that place in all its fullness and my understanding of systemic issues grew as being part of that church by being part of that church and us trying to touch a lot of those issues in various ways and so um, I, I that vision, had, that dream has always excited me. And it's always been the best part of being part of the church is to participate in that dream of God bringing life to the world.
1: So Jesus was a Palestinian, born in a third-rate town, growing up in Nazareth, a Jew, colonized by the Romans. Disputes about who was going to govern the temple. This was the world. And to navigate that world with all of its differences, with those that are in and those that are out, those that can come to temple, those that can't come to temple. So, that sense that the church is rooted That it has a place. It is in the world. And it is to regard the world and to address the world. But it isn't there for itself. It's there for the life of the world. Is that very much
2: very much so. I mean that was the the the, that text from Jeremiah that you start out with was a pivotal text for us um, in establishing a group of pe- people who lived in that neighborhood. So we really, we were a parish community, over 70% at one point who walked to participate in the worshiping life of the church And the initiatives that we started that included everything from housing for refugee claimants to social enterprises and creating employment for people with barriers to a spiritual urban retreat center to performing arts group for children where they learned the stories of the Bible and presented them. All those things were meant to bring life to the place where we were and to the people we were, and especially with the focus on the people who were on the outside looking in, much like Jesus
0: himself so what would you say like you, you were there for 30 years? Right. Um, what were the best days there? What what kind of thing
2: Well, I I often describe it in three phases based on the decades. The first when we came there the church was dysfunctional and ready to close. And so it was took us 8 to 10 years to get healthy. And when I was doing my doctoral thesis, I came across a study by a guy named Israel Galindo so that who studied church renewal and said on average it takes 10 years for a church to move from a static place to a renewed vision. Mm-hmm. I thought, 10 years, that's like forever. <laughs> and then when I, I wrote that thesis when I was 40 and realized, okay, that and I looked at what happened, and it, it was uh, that years. was 10 years. And so the first 10 years was really rebuilding and working through some fundamental issues and developing a culture of parish and place and, and, yeah. and vision. And then the next 10 years were when things really flourished. We developed all about six or seven different initiatives that became organizations that have gone on to become much larger than the church itself.
0: So you're working with other entities in that, in some of those?
2: We, we partnered a lot in the neighborhood, but all these developed out of the life of our own community and were run by people from within our community initially. And so um, those were flourishing years. And then the last 10 years were a lot of deepening and strengthening this the things that we mm-hmm. began in those 10 years i mean the other side of it is i kind of burnt out near the end and right. so that um, and i think there were other leaders that kind of burnt out and so there's some learning that we've had to do around it was just that. too
0: too managing the kind of
2: we we never really i think the, there's, there's a lot of reflections there but we didn't figure out we were a community and we were also an institutional church and as mm-hmm. leaders we did both and that was not that wasn't sustainable to do both, yeah. to be an intense community and... Oh, right, and Sunday's still
0: coming. We still have to do services.
2: We still did all the institutional things of the church, and mm-hmm. so that was the part of the challenge mm-hmm. of that. Part of the goodness, but part of the challenge.
1: Have you reflected on those institutional things of the church and in retrospect... Whether, how that ought to dance with the life of the community or what the distinctive features are there and where the balance might be? That's a good question. I mean, I, I value institutions in the sense that
2: uh, um, institutions give strength and and uh, longevity and, and sustain growth. They can kind of sustain growth. I, I think of the Benedictines. I was part of a group that met uh, three times at the um, St. John's College and Seminary in, in, outside of Minneapolis, Benedictine Seminary. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Benedictines there, one of the largest Benedictine, Benedictine communities in North America, has a vision to digitalize every religious text in the world. I've said you know we've been kind of part of the new monastic movement i said there's no new monastic community that's going to take on a vision like that Mm -hmm. like so institutions have a strength and purpose in our case i've often said vision needs to to lead the vision of god in the world and institutions need to follow and the infrastructure that we tried to keep up strong i always tried to make sure that our vision was leading us and that institution was following and not the other way around mm-hmm. and i think for the most part we were able to do that and i think that it was a good balance i think the more of the struggles were around leadership in that that mm-hmm. we tried to i was leading a community and leading an institution and that needed to be divided a little bit so
1: i have wondered a bit about uh we don't have to spend any time on this but i'll raise it I have seen a number of churches which have run with the social justice agenda. It doesn't sound to me like they've done it as intentionally as you have, where you're actually trying to build community or working at community, not just build community, but working with and in the community that is given to you. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a big dist- difference than programming. Uh, but in the churches that I know, which have been really committed to that, God bless them for it. I've also uh, noticed that their worship life is pretty thin. And I've wondered, I did a study on the United Church a number of years ago, and it led me to really wonder, is it possible to live the good in this fashion that you beautifully described, to live the good? And the Benedictines are here, a really interesting historical example. Is it possible to live the good, to do that eight hours of work, eight hours of study, What does the eight hours of prayer look like? Hmm. And, of course, we know what that looks like for the Benedictines, and we know what it looks like for the great liturgical traditions. Was there any sense that the worship life of your community, did that, did that nurture beauty my sense, and this may be a prejudice on my part, I'd like to hear what you say about it, my sense is that the good and the true are unsustainable over any length of time without the beautiful. Absolutely. Well, been influenced by David Bentley Hart here myself quite a bit.
2: Oh. Um, um, we The worshiping life of our community was rich, very rich. We had a, we kind of... A, mentioned at lunch where Anglican priest who would participate in our worshiping life described us as bapto-catholic and he felt like we had a broad sense of the traditions of the church and we said we want to bring the treasures of the church into our worshiping life and get rid of the baggage that we all carry from other traditions and that was kind of our moniker and vision mm. for the worshiping life of the church so we were quite liturgical And yet we had our our prayers of the people were some of the most meaningful parts of our worship. We participated in Eucharist every Sunday in a variety of forms. And so we had, we felt, I felt like we had the best of both worlds. We had the richness of the church's traditions with the flexibility to be creative around that. And uh, so the worshiping life of the community was significant. We developed Um, A number of, because we had people that lived in little hubs, and so we had one block where there's five or six people, another block where there's five or six people lived, and we had Still Point, which was close to the church, a little urban retreat place. We People gathered for times of prayer regularly during the week. And Mm. so Wednesday morning prayers, Tuesday, Thursday nights, a couple of these other hubs, people would meet to do uh, Nation exercises. So there were there were these hubs and rhythms of prayer in the life of the community, that weren't long. You know, they would be often an hour max, sometimes even twenty minutes. But they were ways to keep people rooted in the life of God. And uh, I, one of the things I, I appreciate about our church, looking back at this vision, is I feel like we held together. The worshiping life of the community, prayer, uh, listening, prayer, healing, prayer—these were all important elements of our life together. And then there, we we also were involved in you know poverty reduction, in and, and you know addressing systemic issues around race. We we were trying to hold together this wide vision of God bringing life to the world and uh, into the place we were. And uh, I think we did that relatively mm-hmm. well. And that's the vision that I. I tried to offer in my own teaching is this vision of a thicker shared life around common practices of prayer and reflection and action Mm -hmm. in a particular place that's much more porous and engaged with the issues in life of the neighborhood. and. That vision is one, again, that excites me. And when you see a church stepping into that kind of vision, I think it offers real hope for the world. It it, it fills that space, you know, that Habermas has described so well, of you know, the individual and the state. And this the this space in between is, is vacuous in a lot of places. And it feels like it's an opportunity for the church, that kind of vision, to step in there and to
1: offer this vision of the beautiful life mm. within that, kind of context. That's lovely. Mm-hmm. That's beautifully said. And so often I, I think uh, the churches that ran with the social justice vision and made a great contribution to Canada, the government took over most of those programs. Right. And as the government took them over, of course it takes them over with a difference, but it takes them over, and um, the churches at the end of that discover... That they no longer have a purpose. Mm. But that's because they were understood as social justice initiatives and programs, right. which is not the same as 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 working to enlarging the life of a living community in a particular place. Mm-hmm. So that's the space that you were talking about. Yep. Wow, that's that's marvelous. In your
0: teaching now. So now you're teaching, you're helping yep. other congregations um do you find that it's uh, relatively easy for you to to describe this vision and th- that people kind of get it and are interested in going there or or do you do you try that at all or are you teaching something different
2: no i i oftentimes try to bring in people who are living out some particular aspect of this whole vision and to put it on the ground for people mm-hmm. to see it, but it 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 I know that in our own community, the f- people were formed by participating in the cross-section of all these things, right? And uh, it formed all of us to have hope in the gospel, mm-hmm. that it could bring transformation into our own lives and the lives of hope of a place. And that is hard to teach in the sense that it's hard to foster that hope. If you've never seen it yeah lived out, you... You you tend to and that you know churches tend to be good at one thing or another you know they pursue systemic social change but they don't form people in the life of God very well sometimes or the people are really focused on forming people in the life of God but not at all right. engaged in the life of the world and the messy difficult complex issues of life and and so how to hold those together is the, the piece that I keep. Encouraging churches to do, because that's what I understand the vision of the gospel to be, and that's what I think where the church uh, has some hope to yeah, offer. And
0: there must always be translation. You are in your particular community. Yep. So you can say this is this is this was our call in this community yep. to live this life out. Yep. But it's going to be different if you're at a church in yeah, Vancouver or if you're... And I think sometimes it would seem that, you know, I'm picturing you up, you know, professor lecturing, kind of helping people see this or boards or sessions or whatever. And that oftentimes people would come with, oh, that church really worked. Maybe we should try that model. Maybe we should do what Tim did and then our church will grow or something like that. Right. Right, That you're always kind of battling that at the same time.
2: Yeah. the franchise model of church is just dead in the water, isn't it? I mean, like, and who wants to you know be the pastor of a franchise (laughs) that to me has no interest and doesn't capture my interest what captured my interest was this particular place and with this particular time we're in with this particular group of people that were becoming part of this community and that we were getting to know in this neighborhood and then what does god form out of that that's the exciting part to be a pastor for me
1: yeah
3: do you think that sometimes uh, churches may may struggle with holding both aspects? Because, uh, as you described previously, the amount of time that is required to kind of set this up to actually succeed well is is not small. Like you you talk no. about how it was a ten year process for you. Is there a part where you're you're dealing with congregations and is that what you're generally telling them that like, this is a long-term thing. Like you need to stick in this for the long-term and you may like, it's going to require a lot of effort before you may even see a lot of connection. Is that pretty common?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Alison, it, it takes time. And Stanley Harawas says this little line. He says, Shalom takes time. Like Mm. you don't, you don't pursue this kind of vision. It's not a five-year plan, you (laughs) know? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, it takes time both to form a culture that of a people who then get this and try to live into this. And it takes time to see real change take place. Mm-hmm. Um, um, just one little story that's encouraging on that front. And then I want to come back to one other thing in response. We Kinbrace is the organization we developed that, that develops housing and support for refugee claimants. Two houses. So that side, was originally an initiative of Grandview. Yes, right? it was okay. two houses side by side. where. People live there during the time that they're going through their refugee claim process and then the ones that get a positive determination or help to get established mm-hmm. in the city. Kinbrace has affected the whole entire refugee system yeah. because they realized that there was a, there was a really poor guide that the government had put forward for refugee claimants that even if you spoke English, it was hard to follow. And so they said, you know, we could do this. And they got a graphic designer that was a part of our community and a writer, and they developed a refugee guide. Well, that guide has now been translated into about 8, 10 languages, and it's used as the refugee guide across Canada. Um, Then secondly, they realized that refugee claimants were really nervous going into their refugee hearing because they'd never been in the law courts. They'd never Mm -hmm. seen what's going to happen in their whole life is being determined in that moment. And so they developed what they called ready tours where they took, um, uniting and collaborating with the law society of Vancouver. They, they, they developed these tours so people could go in there and meet a refugee judge and have an idea what was Mm going to happen. These are now in almost every major city across standard across Canada This tiny organization, less than a half a million dollar annual budget, has impacted systemic by going deep into the roots of what they're doing and then seeing what's needed and then bringing change to all society. That's the kind of thing that can happen if you have a long-term vision of really getting rooted in a place. The other thing I wanted to say in response to your question is that of course, not everybody is good at everything, right? Yeah. Right? And so we we named seven common practices that we wanted everybody in the church to at least put their hands in, get their hands into, you know, prayer, engagement with the scriptures, um, seeking justice for the least, um, participating in corporate worship, creativity, um, care for creation, and, uh, and confession was the last one. And we... We well we yeah. we said, we want everybody to participate in all those, but we recognize some are going to th- be in this part of the garden, some are going to be in that part of the garden, but we these seeds of the kingdom, which we called them, we wanted everybody to participate in. So that vision of common practice was also so important for keeping a community that was quite diverse theologically yeah. together because we shared a common practices that were really important
1: to who we were. Hmm. So I'm struck by... The sense of rootedness, that this is not a project. This is shaping your life. Yep. It is monastic. Yep. When somebody goes to the monastery, they tell them, go to hell. Go out into the world, get some experience, come back in 10 years. We yep. want to see you then. And if they come back, then there's a lengthy period of time Uh and discernment about whether is this really where you belong? Yep. Because this is about how we live together. In the rule of St. Benedict, I love that line, many of his lines. I mean, it's the finest book near as I can tell on organizational management that's ever been written. Uh, he says, if somebody is in the monastery and doesn't understand what's going on here, let three stout monks take them outside and explain it to them. <laughs> so right. what's striking to me about the church normally— most of the churches that I'm familiar with, is that they they think they're an institution. The pastors understand themselves to be on contract, and they're pastors for a period of time. I know several pastors who are now leaving their churches to go elsewhere after having tried as best they could, to get their church to actually engage, even in the most infinitesimal way, with some of the poor that sleep on their veranda once in a while. I mean, this is really modest stuff. But it occurs to me, just as you're getting traction, you leave. So what does it mean to have an institution like the church, not all of them are like this, but the vast majority, where a corporate model has been adopted to have the leadership come in, take hold, presumably, or at least imagine that they are leading, or people imagine that they are or ought to be, and then they leave. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's curious. Isn't it curious? It It, it, strikes me listening to you, very curious that this is the way in which it is by and large developed in the Protestant world. The Catholic world is a little bit different because they have bishops, Yep. And they have all kinds of additional ways of ministry. And the Orthodox Church is a bit different. Yeah, yeah I think it is. It
2: Clericalism and, and as clergy life as a career, to me, is a, a bit of an oxymoron because how can you lead a community that you're trying to, really what you're trying to do is to form a way of life, and to come at it with a corporate model, like I'm going to bring and bring shifts here and changes in in three to five years mm-hmm. and then I'm gonna go on and do the same thing somewhere else. Like how how does that help the community form a way of life? Then uh, the so I, I think there is real problems with that model. That's not to say that, you know, some leadership roles I, I feel like I now I'm trying to, st- you know, I'm stepping out of my leadership role, but remaining part of the community, and I think there's goodness in that.
0: Well, so you are still part of the community.
2: Yeah, and so there's goodness in that, but, you know, we don't have to stay in the same roles. But the community needs to be formed for a way of life, and that's
1: a long-term vision, Yep. Yeah. What did the community that you were working at there, that group of people gathered, all those that they rubbed shoulders with, some of it was direct action refugees poverty things of that nature what did all those people who weren't necessarily worshiping with you mm-hmm. but you were rubbing shoulders with yep what did what was their gift to the people that were the worshiping center well it's, it's, we
2: felt like a we had a lot of allies in the neighborhood people, who shared some of the vision that we were going for. And so because we were rooted there in that neighbourhood and we knew a lot of our neighbours and they too shared a lot of our convictions that we felt like we had a lot of allies in the neighbourhood. When we had a rezoning hearing for our social housing project, we had about... uh, Twenty some people, including a community choir, come and sing at the rezoning hearing at City Hall. That was the first time there was ever a community (laughs) choir at a rezoning hearing, we were told. And, uh, And again, they were allies in the kind of vision that we were doing. So that was one thing the other thing is that we we developed a shared life with people who were living on the street or near the street in a variety of different ways including our community meal we had community houses uh, up to 15 community houses our family lived in that context as well where we shared our home with people some of whom were uh, living on the edges of poverty and uh, that kind of shared where you have a shared destiny where it's not a part of a program that you're trying to get poor people to come Mm -hmm. to and do something, but like we're sharing a a destiny together that changes your relationship and that changes, you know, how you feel about your neighborhood and the people there. And I think a lot of people grew into that vision of a shared destiny. And so we were sharing homes, vehicles, money, whatnot. And
1: that became part of the vision. And it wasn't necessary to share worship in the strict sense of the word, back to the rule of St. Benedict. Your work is your worship. Your studies, your worship. Your prayers, your worship. Your meeting of the strangers, your worship. It's all worship, which is not to diminish the gathering of the community. But the gathering of the community around worship, that central core, I mean, I can't help but think of the new you know, the gospel image. We are meant to be yeast, not the loaf. Yeah. yeah. To be yeast, to be generative, yeah. to be fecund, yeah. and understand that it isn't us. Mm. It's the relationship. Yeah. And it's what's happening between us right. and within us. And together, what is happening, it is in the communion that the being of the world is transformed. Agree. And I think, again, this vision of more communities
2: need to, churches need to be more porous in that Mm. way. Like I feel like there needs to be more porosity between who's part of the worshiping life who's part of the next layer of community in the church and that sort of thing. I had one of the stories I liked was uh, when we had a person from out of town that wanted to come and join our worship and was walking down commercial drive and was trying to get directions. And they asked somebody, do you know where Grandview church is? And they said, Oh, Tim's church. Yeah. Yeah. Tim's a pastor there. You the blue church right around the corner. He said, Oh, are you part of the church? And he says, Oh, hell no. I'd never go to church. <laughs> but if I did go to church, <laughs> oh, that's yeah. where I'd go. Yeah. That's where I'd go. He said, yeah. and I, I love that story. Cause he saw us as a, a good warm spot in the neighborhood is when I when I came there people didn't know the church existed so that kind of that was an encouraging well and it's still the same building as it when is. you were it there is. it was yeah.
0: a, you know you built a lot of things when you were there but not a new campus no, no. or no. a new yeah it, it yeah cuz you drive by it on first there and it's yeah. like it looks like an old church
1: exactly <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah yeah
1: the church is for the life of the world Yep, well, there again,
2: Schmemann's inter- influenced me there and his vision yeah. as well. But uh, um, absolutely, that's the kind of vision that we need to grab a hold of. And of course, you're always working at, you know, recognizing the church is also full of sinners. And so we're always going to fumble around, stumble and argue with each other and so forth. But it's to keep the focus that all of that is to aimed towards that. And uh, if we don't do that, I feel like we're just going to collapse mm-hmm. in our own structures and we'll become about maintaining the structure. And that's where the institution will drive things rather than the mission of God in the world.
3: Yeah, I- I'm really intrigued with, with how you're explaining this because this sounds like what I think a lot of churches profess that they wish to be like, but struggle, I think, to leave some of those corporate and institutional um maybe stumbling blocks uh behind with with the churches that that you're working with what what sort of advice do you give them like cuz th- from from what I'm kind of gathering and putting together they would have to let go of some things in order to actually adopt the type of model of church that you're talking about like there there are certain concessions they would just have to like leave is that what you're finding that there are some churches who are like, oh, well, I couldn't let go of, you know, this doctrine. I, I We couldn't, you know, open up our, our community to that. Or how does that actually play out with churches that are approaching you?
2: Well, I'm working a lot more with the Presbyterians these days. You know, the Presbyterians are very good at order. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know, our church meetings, we followed, we used Robert's Rules of Order, and we still do to some extent. But we had two things happen. One was we had a lot of people from other countries around the world who didn't just mm. dive in like Westerners and say yeah. what they think. Uh-huh. They would wait to be asked. And so we, I said, why don't you speak? And he says, I wouldn't, not like you Westerners, I wouldn't just jump in and yeah. speak. Hmm. And then the other thing was that they said, like, you're so rationalistic. Like, there's no room for the Spirit in the kinds of discussions that you're having. And so our meeting shifted where whenever we had a significant issue to talk about, which we usually did in our church meetings, we would talk about it, and then we would go around in small groups and circles, and we'd go around the circle invite everybody that wanted to speak to speak, and then bring that back to the whole. And then we'd take five minutes of silence and listening and That was transformative because Mm. it became less about trying to get your way and more about discerning, like, what is the Spirit trying to say to us tonight Mm. through each other as we discuss these issues? Um, Those are the kinds of shifts that took place as we listened to each other and were shaped by each other along the way. And so, yeah, part of what I say to churches is that, you know, we we for example a lot of us in the west we live with even as christians what taylor describes as the imminent frame mm-hmm. you know that that we we function like atheists a lot of the times and it's actually a gift from people from other parts of the world who are live in the life of the spirit um, to to help us to recover what it is to live mm-hmm. in a more integrated frame of reference um, so that we're not stuck there in that kind of rationalistic, managerial kind of McIntyre position of, you know, we got yeah. control of things.
0: Mm-hmm. So do you think it's hard for some churches to let go of that way of thinking?
2: I think it is. Yeah. I, I think, it, you know, again, order is valuable, but only if it leads and allows you to express the mission of God. Right. And so, but just maintaining order for the sake of order, that's where I think churches, or maintaining institution for the sake of institution, this is where that's not a long-term vision. And I think churches are going to, you know, in a secular age, most of those churches eventually are going to fade away.
1: I have the impression that many of these churches have been in a stance, I mean, many of the Protestant churches, of course, that, have their roots in Europe and what have you, came over here, and they really became ethnic churches. And some of them break out of that a little bit, others uh, perhaps not at all. But they end up having a kind of model, which is we are the church, it is us. It's even Lutherans have a kind of Armenian Hmm. theology of the ecclesia, Hmm. It's just us Germans. I mean, it's the old problem that Peter and Paul had. You know, I love the icon of Peter and Paul on that feast day in the Orthodox Church because the icon shows the two of them, but they're slightly turned away from each other. Uh And I point out to people in the church, you know, this photograph was never taken. (laughs) uh, Because they never got close enough to talk about that. But it's, do you really need to be a Jew first? Mm -hmm. So it's this notion that the church exists for herself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what's so striking to me, I don't know that I write about this, but it seems to me that the church is, at its best, the only institution in the world that does not exist for herself. Yep, I think that is it the. exists to give its life away. And again, that this is the heart of the
2: trinitarian life that mm-hmm. we reflect when we when we live mm-hmm. this way, and so it's. Theological vision, I think, is really, really important for the church. I feel like the North American church recedes to pragmatism so easily. And this theological vision has been so important in Grandview's journey
1: and continues to be important. So I think uh, I have said this in the past to a few pastors I know who have complained about where their church is, uh, simply say, but your church hasn't ever existed. Hmm. Why don't you give birth to it? (laughs) You know, it can only come to exist in communion with the world Mm -hmm. if it isn't in communion with the life of the world in the particular, Mm -hmm. because Jesus was a Jew, right, in a particular place. Only with the particular. You've got to have, get your hands dirty in that way only then can you come to be
2: this is where i feel like covid is an opportunity for the church to rediscover its neighbors Uh, like instead of we can't meet in person to worship let's rediscover our neighbors let's become very local and let's really engage. And this freaks some pastors out, and it freaks some church people, because that's not their vision of church. Their vision of church is just two hours on a Sunday and not having to engage, bother people about religion. Yeah. And uh, and so I think this is the opportunity, and I I really hope that churches will use this opportunity to rediscover their neighbors. Hmm.
0: That's really interesting and really well put, and, and helps us to see... I mean, some of the conversation we've been having previously or the, the deficiencies in church culture that COVID has brought out, you present that as the possibility of a gift to, to discover, to see, to well, start again. M-
2: the line I use is I, I think that COVID has exposed and accelerated the demise of church during Christendom, and uh, that that the opportunity is to rediscover a living church on the ground that engages our neighbors in new ways. I think that's part of what I see as the possibility
1: for COVID. The incarnation. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. The incarnation. And a life of communion. Yep. Communion. But we've
2: we've grown so far from that. Mm-hmm. Like in that that engaging our neighbor is just essential to living the life with God in the world. Like somehow that has during Christendom that seemed to kind of to uh, just shrink that vision. Mm. And I don't yeah. see how the church can recover its dynamic role in society and be a gift to society if we can't recover that knowing how to be a neighbor.
0: I remember, uh, I think we were at the same thing, Daryl Guter teaching at the Center for Missional Leadership, ending one of his weekend seminars or something. Uh, and I, you'll probably remember the same thing. He, he stood there and, and you could see he had his notes. He's always well-prepared, all yep. that kind of stuff. But then just kind of closed his eyes and he said to those of us assembled who were there for educational opportunity, this seminar, and, but this was something he was feeling spiritually clearly. He said, uh, I think we might finally be witnessing the end of Christendom, <laughs> but he said it so hopefully because what he was trying to say was the Christian mission now is something yeah. that we might be able to, you know, review right. and see, right. Right. but it was with the, the demise right. of this. For you, one of the things is interesting, well, t- two things that w- one, I' trying to put myself back into the mindset of a you know a local pastor trying to help their church adopt the theological vision. I love that term, and, but some people might look at this kind of uh, way of seeing things and go, "I've already got too much. I can't even imagine starting things and do." I, I'm just trying to do a worship service and yeah. get a, people to sign up to volunteer. And how does this practically? How do you s- start? Yeah, and how does it not burn you out now that you've been through? The, yep. What are some of the things you would advise? Well,
2: I I feel like there is probably the need to stop maintaining certain structures and activities that that really aren't going to be that helpful for Let us to be the church. You know, I had the gift of when I came to Grandview, the first three months, all I had to do was to go around the neighborhood and say, my name's Tim, I'm with this church, what's going on here, how could we participate in the good of the neighborhood? And I got to know so many people, I built relationships that lasted the whole 30 years, I, you know, helped people learn about the neighborhood again. And I think I wonder whether COVID is a time for church to do something like that, like to say we're not going to be able to do maintain all the things we did, but let's get to know our neighbors in our our neighborhood can't and keep all
0: these ministries running. Yeah, all these demographic ministries, right? To try to outdo the right. run down the street, and, right? Yep. And
2: let's get to figure out what's going on here. And and I wonder what the Spirit might bring to life mm. through these conversations, because nearly everything that started Grandview started through conversations with people that were being impacted. By some of the injustices of society, and so we start having these conversations, and then all of a sudden, God can, the Spirit can start to bring new eyes to see what's possible. The key to what
1: you've said is how can we participate in the good that is here? Right. Mm-hmm. right. This is an entirely different orientation. Different, yeah. It's not how can we bring, how can we minister to, how can we resolve, how can we at least imagine ourselves to be just by doing this, this, and this. So implicit in that is a sense that the goodness of life is. It is. And it doesn't make a damn bit of difference how much you see that it isn't. Uh It is underneath it all. So, you know, we have this lovely prayer, and at the beginning of all Orthodox prayers, uh, you know, Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasury of every good and giver of life, come and abide with us. Hmm. The problem isn't whether it's there. The problem is I'm not abiding. Uh I'm not regarding. I'm not engaged. I'm not seeking communion. I don't have a disposition towards even seeing this. So that's a huge shift that's required, I think.
2: It is, and again, it's, it's related to theological vision because the vision that the, the Spirit is only at work in the gathered life of the Church is such a slim vision of God, and it's not a God that I don't think we'd get too excited about, but this God who's on the move and on the run and looking for the lost and, and wanting to bring life and beauty in all places of society, that is a God we can join in with and we can discover in our neighbourhoods. So exactly, that. that's such an important theological vision.
0: So good. Well, thank you. Do you uh, no, just before we end. Um, you're doing something different now, though, than that role. Yeah. Um, do you miss it? How has been, the, well, what's the transition been like for you?
2: Yeah. I mean, I miss aspects of it. Um, I had a lot of managerial yeah, you don't miss responsibilities that. that I don't miss. Yeah. I... I miss the day-to-day conversations with people, though, uh, like, because we had people that were really trying to, in the various aspects, you know, their vocation, work life, all different ways, trying to live out this vision of the kingdom in the world. And those are energizing conversations yeah. when you see people trying to do that in the academy or wherever. And uh, we had a lot of people trying to do that. And I, I miss those yeah. conversations. That's what I missed the most. But
0: you have other things you're doing now that I, also uh, now I'm, yeah.
2: I'm trying to, I said, I have a much bigger playground, you know, working with the, the, not just the neighborhood, but, many you know other churches in the city and i'm excited by that work too and i feel in vancouver where you know we we are such an autonomous group of people it's it's gonna it's an experiment to see how we can work together for the the good of the city but i'm excited about those possibilities and again i feel like uh, that there's um nobody's really been able to do this right and so but I'd love to yeah. see if there's a way that that we can, as the church, do this together.
0: Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been very uh, um, encouraging to me and and uh, hopeful, which is what I like most about it. And and uh, so um, we. We have your book as well, uh, forming Christian communities in a secular age, and so people can uh, track that down also. But uh, thanks so much for your time. Really been good, and want to hear more about what you're doing. Thanks, Todd. I'll
1: wait to talk to him.
2: Thank you. Thanks, thanks. Awesome, dude.
0: Rector's Cupboard releases a new episode every other Friday. The podcast is a production of Reflector Project. Hosts are Todd Weeb and Allison Williams. Cupboard Master for tastings and locations is Ken Bell. Production and social media by Amanda Miner. For past episodes and other content, visit rectorscupboard.ca. Thanks for listening.